The scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. You can find it printed on page 9 of your worship folder. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Please join me in prayer. Great and loving God, uh, as we have just sung about, your word is a lamp unto our faltering feet. And God, you know how often we falter. And so we ask that in this time, as we listen to your word, that you would shine the light of your word, the light of your heart, the light of your great wisdom for our lives and for our world, that we will be encouraged, that we will be challenged to imagine and to live our lives in new ways because of the encounter we have with you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Many years ago when uh, Minson and I were still dating, we came to um, a point in our relationship where we determined, where we decided that it was time for her to meet my parents. And so we took a trip out. We were living in Michigan at the time. We took a trip out to um, the East Coast, to New Jersey. I grew up in Southern California, but my parents had moved out east when I was in college. And so we took a trip out there. It was going to be a few days. And, um, and I knew that it would be helpful for us to have one evening, just, you know, one evening out on the town on our own um, in New York City, just across the, the bay or the, the Hudson River from uh, Jersey. And so this is the time before Yelp and smartphones. Uh, it feels like, you know, ages ago. And so I remember just, just, I think it was maybe a tour book or a guidebook, and just finding a restaurant. And I, uh, all I was looking for was lots of stars and lots of dollar signs. And, um, and sure enough, it was, it was a good visit, but we needed that time away. And so we... we um, we uh, took the train into New York City, and we walked into this restaurant. 
And I got to tell you, the, the, my first impression was not very good. I was a little disappointed. It was just a small, <clears throat> dark, square room with a bar in the middle. And then they took us to one of the tables off to the side. And it was kind of, <clears throat> the, the, the furniture was, you know, it was not very comfortable. It felt like, frankly, like, um, like patio furniture. So we sat down, and um, the server brings us our menu. We order our drinks, and, um, and, you know, all of the dishes on that menu just didn't sound very substantial. Uh, and so I remember the food came, and we ate, and they took the f- plates away, and we were still hungry. And I remember just sort of like trying to brainstorm as quickly as I could in this strange place that I was not familiar with. What do we do? We had a show to go to, go to afterwards. And I just remember looking across the table at her and saying, whispering, McDonald's? <laughs> and, um, and she said, yeah, that sounds great. Um, and then they brought us a check, and then the, uh, the, the, the server comes along and says, are you guys ready? And I'm thinking, oh, we've loitered too long. This is a fancy restaurant. We've hung around too long. They're kicking us, kicking us out. Great, right? Le- feeling really embarrassed, really at a loss. And so we followed the server, and uh, instead of taking us towards the exit or the entrance, uh, guides us in the opposite direction uh, to the corner of this dark room, pushes a button on the wall, the door is open, bright light shines into this dark room, ushers us in, and off we're going several flights. And then it opens up into this amazing, this amazing banqueting room. High ceilings, fancy, I mean really fancy chandeliers, silverware that felt like it was really made of silver, really, you know, the really heavy kind. And we just had an amazing meal <laughs> up there. Right? That was a whole other part to this experience. Uh, and it just turned out, and I looked over at, across the table and I kind of um, gestured like, I, I knew this was coming. I had this all <laughs> planned. Um, and it turned out to be this amazing evening. We, we um, afterwards enjoyed uh, Phantom of the Opera. And, um, and you know how the story ends, right? We're married, happily married, living um, in San Francisco in this amazing place. And, and I just think about that experience as a picture of basically the sermon outline for today. Um, there is, as we read this story, there, there are some things that confront us about who God is and how God leads in our lives. And we have this central figure, uh, Abraham, uh, who is not just central in this passage, but is a central figure throughout redemptive history, throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is a, um, he, he is a towering figure. And what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't just present us this airbrushed image of heroic characters, but really helps us to get into the nitty-gritty details of their lives where we see their flaws, warts and all. And we have that kind of encounter with Abraham's story in this chapter from Hebrews because I would say maybe one way of breaking this passage down is to say that we are confronted. We are confronted with the problem of the wilderness in this text, and we are also confronted with the promise of a city. And the promise of a city, as we get to that 
portion of the message this morning we're going to find is not without its problems as well. But first, the, the problem of the wilderness. Um, one of the things that we have to do when we come across a passage, a passage like this in the New Testament is it actually helps to go back to the Old Testament and see the larger context, the, 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 the larger narrative that surrounds a person like Abraham. And we're told about in this, in this chapter that it's supposed to be a presentation of, um, it's the hall of faith. It's these heroic figures who trusted God, and they're held up as role models, and they're held up as inspirational examples of what it means, what it looks like to follow God. And that all sounds great until you get into the details of the story, and you hear things like, and I think it's in verse 13, all of these died in faith without having received the promise. What does that mean? What does it mean to follow a God, to, to, to emulate the examples of these people in these, in, in these stories who actually don't receive what was promised to them by God? You see, we are confronted with the problem of the wilderness in Abraham's life because his life was filled with unfulfilled promises. And if you look at the story of Genesis, there are some trigger words for the people of Israel. If it's true, as many scholars say, that the book of Genesis was written for the nation of Israel in a moment in their history when they were in exile, living in the Babylonian exile, then as they, as they hear the story of Abraham, as they listen, they're confronted with things that are, with details of their past, of their lives, of their history that are traumatic. Because God comes in chapter 12 of Genesis and says, go to the land I will show you. And it's this, it's this amazing, inspirational beginning to what you think is going to be the hero's journey. And then right away we're told, maybe just a few verses down, I think it's in verse 6, that Abraham goes where God calls him, the land that God wants to show him. And then the Canaanites are living in that land. Can you imagine if you're in Abraham's shoes? God comes to you and says, I want to show you this land. I'm going to give you this land. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. And then God takes you to a land and says, sorry, it's occupied. The Canaanites are living there. And then a few verses later, it's in verse 10 of chapter 12 in Genesis. We're told that there was a famine in the land. And because of this great famine in the land, Abraham has to go down into the land of Egypt. And again, if you're a Hebrew listening to the story being read to you, that's a trigger word. It's a, it's a, it's a word associated with trauma, with bondage, with slavery. And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what was God doing when he called Abraham? See, it's a little detail that we miss because we get so fixated on that opening verse of chapter 12, not realizing that when Abraham actually does what God tells him to do, that his life is not some happily ever story. The promise that is given to Abraham by God is piecemeal. It's incomplete, and it's unfulfilled in his lifetime. And then the story moves on. You know, you get to Genesis chapter 13, or even before that in 12, where, where Abraham sells his wife in the land of Egypt when he goes there. 
He sells his wife for material profit. Now, if that's too strong of a, a language for you, then he simply uses her to make some profits. He becomes a richer man as a result of the ways in which he deploys his wife, his wife Sarah, in that land. And I wonder if one of the things that we can do as we read a story like this, as we're confronted with a story like this, is to think of our own lives. And this is where Scripture can be so frustrating and also so helpful because you see how God led in Abraham's life, and you think about ways in which you might have tried to follow God in your own life. And I wonder if we can relate to Abraham. Was there ever a time that you felt disappointed by God? Ever a time when you felt like God, that you had been duped by God? When expectations or certitudes of faith that you had came to nothing? You know, have you ever been at a restaurant where, um, you know, you walk in and then there are pictures of uh, the food on the, on the wall, and then and you look, and it just look, it's all mouth-watering, amazing-looking uh, food, and then you order it, and then what comes out is actually a far cry from what you saw in that picture. And it's kind of that experience that Abraham, Abraham has, isn't it? Um, God says, I'm going to show you this land. You're going to be a blessing unto all the nations. You're going to have descendants, children as innumerable as the stars, as the grains of sand on the shores. And then Abraham's life is actually one of sojourning. It's a pilgrimage life. It's a life of um, trying to find a place to belong, a, a land in which he can settle. And then to the very end of his life, uh, he is a renter. He does not have land of his own. And he finds himself surrounded by Hittites. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But here's what you have to understand about the Scriptures. The Scriptures give us, a, uh, give us story after story where there is brutal honesty about what it means to live a life of faith in this world. That following hard after God does not make us immune to life's difficulties, to life's troubles, even to life's traumas. You know, there are two kinds of people in the world. It's always dangerous to say something like that because it's usually followed by logic that you can easily dismiss, but I think this one might work. There are two kinds of people in the world. Um, when a person comes to you and they say, you know what, I've got, something, I've got something amazing to show you. Or maybe, let's put it differently, there's something I want to show you or there's something I want to talk to you about. And there's a person, there's a kind of person where when you hear those words, you are filled with dread, right? And then there's another kind of person where when you hear those words, you're actually filled with hope and expectation and curiosity and excitement. We would like to think that God is, falls in the latter category, wouldn't we? And yet when we read a story like this, he seems to fall in that, in that first category. What are we to do with the promises of God? What are we to do with the problem of wilderness in Abraham's life? And yet, the stubborn fact of the scriptures throughout, and we have to contend with this spiritual truth as well, is that the wilderness is where God's people meet God. It's remarkable when we get to the, the New Testament how often Jesus goes into the wilderness 
to spend time with God, to be restored by God, to be renewed in prayer and fellowship with God. And so there's the problem of the wilderness, and then there is also the promise of the city in this text. The word city occurs several times, and this is so fascinating, and this is, this is kind of the heart of the conundrum of the city we want to talk about as we try to un understand this text. Because to the problem of wilderness, the answer that is given in Scripture is the promise of a city. And that's, that's a conundrum for us, isn't it? Because the city is, is a place that is filled with uh, complex realities. The city is a place that is filled with uh, corrupt political leaders. The city is a place where you walk down the street and it's like, you know, it's, it's a game of dodging feces on the sidewalk. It is, it's a place where amazing things happen, but also there, there are funny smells when you walk down the city. When you live life in the city, you're confronted with pollution and corruption and all kinds of troubles. And so how is it and why is it that in the scriptures we are told in Hebrews chapter 11 that the promise of a city is God's, God's presentation of a, of a preferred future for us? And let's think about what this means. It's not a book. The answer to all of life's problems that God wants to give to us is not a book filled with, you know, answers to life's hardest questions. The picture of redemption is not the church. It's not, at least it's not the institutional version of the church where there's an institution and that institution is now all of a sudden going to solve all of your problems, all of your spiritual questions and all of your theological crises will get solved in the, in the church. That's not what the Bible says. It's not even a life of fastidious morality where if you do all that God calls you to do, then your life will turn out all right. Instead, the picture of paradise, the picture of salvation, the picture of God's redemption fulfilled and brought into fruition in this world is a city. And, we have, and this is the conundrum for us. Why the city? How, how is it that the city is to become for us a picture of God's work in the world? It sounds odd until you begin to realize that the city's core belief is that it is not good for people to be alone. That the city's primary purpose, and when we think of the city, we have all these images that aren't really true in the time of the scriptures. When the Bible was written, the city was not a place of skyscrapers and you know, fa fancy buildings and highways and traffic jams and air pollution. The city was simply a place where there was population density, where people, because they decided that it was not good to be alone out in the wilderness, it was better for them to live together in community, in close proximity to one another. The city is simply a place where people say, I don't want to live life alone, where people begin to experience the reality of what we are told in Genesis 2.18, where God, God sees the problem that Adam is confronting, and, he, and God says, it is not good for Adam to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. And you know what the, what the answer, what the solution God offers is? God does not say, 
oh, you know, my poor creation, Adam, he's so lonely. I'm going to take time off of all this other work I'm doing in other parts of the universe and spend more time with Adam. That's not what God says. God says, I'm going to make another human being for Adam. And there's, you know, there's a, a profound theological insight here. Oftentimes, as Christians, we like to say that there's a God-sized hole that nothing else in the world will, will fulfill, right? Your career, your ple the pleasures of this life, the things that we want to run after, those things will not satisfy the God-sized hole in our souls. But there's a whole other kind of truth that we are confronted with that we find in Genesis 2.18. There is a human-sized hole that God refuses to satisfy, that God seems wholly incapable of filling. And God wants us, rather than to look to God, to look to other people for relationship, for wholeness, for meaning, and for satisfaction. And in Abraham's life, we get a, a sign and a foretaste and a glimpse of what it looks like to live in community. Because yes, it's true that Abraham is wandering in the wilderness until the end of his life, the promised land is not truly given to Abraham. And yet there's a beautiful little scene. It's often overlooked. But it's, there's a beautiful scene in Genesis chapter 23 where Sarah's wife dies. I'm sorry. Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies. And Abraham needs a, a plot of ground to bury his wife, Sarah. And so he goes to the Hittites because he's living in the land of the Hittites, which is uh, a portion of Canaan. And so he's living in the promised land. He has no land of his own. He needs a place to bury his wife. And so he goes to the Hittites, and he says this in chapter 23, verse 3. He says, I am a stranger and an alien residing among you. Now think about this. This is in the twilight of his life. After all the promises of God in Genesis chapter 12, at the end of his life, he says, I am a stranger I'm a stranger and an alien residing in this land. Would you, will you sell me a plot of land so I can bury my wife? And then there's this really interesting exchange that happens. Some, you know, maybe a cynical version of this might be that it's kind of a master class in um, the art of negotiation. But what basically happens is Abraham says, I want to buy a plot of land. The Hittites' uh, response to Abraham is, no, you're a guest among us. We have so much respect for you. Um, we look up to you. Bury your dead in the choicest land that we have to offer. And this is back and forth. Abraham says, no, I insist. It's sort of like two adults going after, fighting over the bill, the check, at the end of a meal. Abraham says, I'm going to pay for this land. The Hittites say, no, please don't pay for this land. And they go back and forth. And in the end, Abraham ends up paying for this land. But it's a reminder to us not only of the fact that he is a foreigner and an alien, but he is also someone who dwells peaceably in the promised land as a sojourner, as an alien. And this is so, I mean, this is such mind-boggling theological and biblical truth if you really think about this. Because oftentimes, if you've grown up in the church, if you're familiar with Christian theology, one of the problems of the Old Testament is the problem of conquest, 
right? It's God calling his people to go into a land and to displace, to expunge that population, to, to defeat that population, to, to, to do violence in the land. And that's true, but do you realize that in the Old Testament, we also have a picture of a person who was called by God, living as a sojourner, as a foreigner, as an alien in that land, living peaceably amongst the people in, which, in the midst of which he finds himself, creating a multi-ethnic community of people who dwell in the land, loving one another, showing respect for one another, and flourishing in the land together. Not trying to conquer one another, not trying to displace one another, not trying to outmaneuver one another, but living together peaceably. In contrast to the stories of conquest, of conquest we find elsewhere, Abraham's dwelling in the land, in the promised land, was marked by mutuality, humility, and generosity. And before, let me say this again, before conquest of the promised land, the Old Testament gives us a picture of a multi-ethnic community of people living together peaceably in the promised land. And Abraham, even though he was far from receiving the fulfillment of God's promises to him, Abraham understood the point of God's promise to him that it was to live together in community. That it, for Abraham, it was not simply about arriving at the destination and about having wealth and having land and possessing the land. But for Abraham, it was about living in community with the people around him that God had called him to live, to live alongside. You know, Ruby Sales, the great um, civil rights activist, has some wonderful insights reflecting back on the period of the 60s and the 70s and the civil rights movement. And she says this wonderful thing. She says, you know, many of us got it wrong. You know, after the civil rights movement, many of us thought that the movement was about jobs, that it was about position, that it was about status. When what Martin Luther King really meant when he talked about the mountaintop, that what he really envisioned when he talked about um, what he hoped God would enact in the world that was so filled with injustice was a beloved community, was a harmonizing of the I with the we and the we with the why, with the I, that we would learn to live together in community. And friends, do you realize that Jesus lived this kind of life? Jesus lived this kind of mutuality, this life of generosity, this life of humility. This person who comes to us who is God, who is the very Son of God, does not come de making demands, insisting on the kinds of things he deserves because of his status, because of his divine status, but instead Jesus comes to us seeking relationship. What do we know about Jesus? When Jesus came, what did he do? What was so offensive about him? It was the fact that he sought relationship with the wrong kinds of people. It was not so much his teaching. Yes, his teaching was offensive. Yes, his teaching was hard. But what really got him killed was that he hung around the wrong kind of people, that he made friends, that he sought friendship amongst those with whom it was inappropriate for a religious teacher 
to seek friendship. And so, dear friends, we are confronted with the problem of the wilderness in this text, but we are also offered a beautiful promise, a beautiful picture of a city of God that, God, that God's own design is putting together in our world, where people are living alongside of each other peaceably, seeking one another's benefit, seeking the flourishing of one another. Yes, it's true. It's true that the songs tell us, tell us that we were once lost and now we are found. It's true that our theology tells us that we are saved because of God's activity in the world. But it's also true that even though we were once lost and now we are found, we often live our lives flailing in the wilderness, wandering lost in the wilderness. And the promise that God gives to us in the midst of that wilderness is the promise of a city where all things are made right because people choose to live together. The life of faith is at once mired in the wilderness, but it is also moving towards the city of promise. And this is a picture that keeps us humble and at the same time full of hope because we know that God is building this city among us. I want to close with just the one more quote from um, B.J. Miller, who is a doctor here in this city, who is doing some amazing uh, work in uh, hospice and palliative care. And I'm just so struck by what he says about this work, this work of um, helping people transition into death, into the, the, the last phases, the last years of their life. And he says this. He says, consider every major compulsory effort it takes to be human. The need for food has birth cuisine. The need for shelter has given rise to architecture. The need for cover, fashion. And for being subjected to the clock, well, we invented music. This beautiful picture of facing constraints in the world, of encountering the wilderness of the world, this beautiful picture of what it means to face death in the face, and at the same time, in the face of these constraints, to construct beauty, to contribute by living together, by working together, a city in which God's vision of flourishing comes to fruition. And so in closing, let me say this. Go with Jesus into the city. San Francisco may not be the heavenly city that God is building, right? San Francisco may not be the kind of city that God would build if God were building a city. But it is the city that God loves. It is a city in which we get glimpses of the kind of thing that God wants to see in the city that he himself is building, which is a city where people live together, where people find creative solutions together, where people, because of their commitment to one another, experience a glimpse, a foretaste of heaven. And so might this be a picture for us of what it means to pursue friendship with the city because God God is pursuing friendship with the city, even as, even as God pursues friendship with us. Let us pray. God, we thank you that in the life and the story of Abraham, 
we see a picture of that is um, so honest about facing um, the realities of pain and suffering and all of the unfulfilled promises that so many of our lives, so many of our aspirations confront. And we also see your great love bursting forth in the promise of a city where people live together, in the promise of a city where people work together, in the promise of a city where people are bound together by love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. And we ask that you would give us hearts that long for this kind of city, even in our lives, even in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.